Scripture, Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. Colossians 1, 21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, sent you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which, we, which was also proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions." Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed upon me for your benefit, that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. I'll pray. Father, we um, again thank you for your word and for all the things that you have revealed to us. Thank you for your sufficiency and power and that our trust is not misplaced in trusting Christ alone for all that we need. Thank you for your love for us and your intent to see us grow and to be brought into greater conformity to Christ. And we pray that you would, through your word and by your spirit, accomplish in us all that is on your heart to do. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, it's the um, last week of Bible school for us at His Hill. Students will be leaving on Thursday, so for most of them, this will be their last time to be here. A um, few of them are staying for summer camp. I'm glad for that. So we'll be shifting gears pretty quickly there at His Hill. And really just thank the Lord for a great school year and for all the students the Lord's had with us. We're going to miss them. It's always hard to see them go. Um, Paul, in, these, in this last section that we ha- they looked at last week, really just talking about one thing, and that is the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. That He is creator, He is sustainer, He is redeemer, He is reconciler, there is, He is above all. And if He is the supreme God that He is, well then an implication that flows from that is that He is absolutely sufficient for everything in this life. And if he can't handle this life, then he is not the God that he proclaims to be. But he is God, and he does indwell us, and there is nothing more that we will ever need than what we received the moment we placed our faith in Christ, and that is Christ himself. And so throughout the Bible, we see proclaimed the sufficiency of Jesus Christ based upon his supremacy. And now Paul moves into some more just personal implications from that. And he, here in verse 21, he talks about him having not just reconciled all of creation to himself, but he has specifically reconciled us to himself for all those who have placed their faith in him. 
So he says in verse 21, And although you were formerly, formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So he is, has reconciled us to himself. Now we were, before we were saved, according to this passage of scripture, alienated from God, hostile in mind toward God, and engaged in evil deeds. Not everybody believes that about themselves, but it is true. Um, if you receive Christ early on, and it seemed that our oldest son received Christ when he was three years old, it's kind of hard to think of a three-year-old as being alienated, hostile toward God, and engaged in evil deeds. He didn't burn the house down when he was three. Um, he was a pretty good kid. And we look at him and go, he was just a little angelic boy. And God looks at him and sees a sinner in need of redemption. He sees one who, apart from the grace of God, is a monster. And that the only answer for his condition is Jesus. That's kind of harsh. But that's the reality of it. I came across a couple of interesting quotes about our condition before we were saved. And it says, this one person says, um, it is partly because sin does not provoke our own wrath that we do not believe that sin provokes the wrath of God. And little children are sinners. Their sin doesn't necessarily provoke our wrath. So why would it provoke the wrath of God? Back in the 18th century, there was a lady named Lady Huntington, and she was a godly British noblewoman. She invited a number of her upper-class friends to come and hear the great evangelist George Whitfield. She got this reply from the proud Duchess of Buckingham, who wrote, It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting. And I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiment so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. Wow. That's a woman who does not think that she is alienated from God, hostile in mind, and engaged in evil deeds. To be reconciled to God, you have to first see that you are alienated from him, hostile in mind, and engaged in evil deeds. Even if outwardly you're a relatively good person, your heart is just as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. And you've got to see that God provides everything necessary for your being reconciled to him through the death of Jesus for your sins. I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more I become convinced of my sinful heart. I may not have been fully convinced of it at 10 years old when I received Christ, but I'm pretty convinced of it today. That apart from God, my mind is hostile toward Him, I am engaged in evil deeds, and I would be alienated from Him. 
So what changed our status, our condition? Jesus Christ gave himself for us. And in doing so, reconciled all things to himself. That doesn't mean everyone is going to be saved, but it means everything that needs to be done to be saved has been accomplished. This is not a verse teaching universalism, all will be saved. But it's saying that Christ accomplished on the cross all that was necessary for every person to be in relationship to God. Jesus has done it all. All we need to do is receive the free gift that has been offered to us, and we receive that gift by placing our faith in Christ, who died as a substitute for our sin. The message just couldn't be any simpler. Through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, we have been reconciled to him. So again, in verse 21, we were alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, and yet he has now, he has now reconciled you. He has done it. We are not saved by our doing. We're saved by his doing. And he... God reckons us right with God. The very righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. An amazing thing. That if we place our faith in God, He transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son, as we saw earlier in the chapter. And God reckons us righteous. God has reconciled us to Himself. I love that word, reconcile. I've talked about it many times over the years. And it's essentially the, the word picture that comes to mind is when um, I had saw it and it was very um, pressed home to me. I know the guy didn't, tour guide didn't intend to it for that to happen. But when um, many years ago I went to the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas, and they take you used to take you into the place where the Apollo command room was for all the Apollo missions, and on the wall is a clock, and the tour guide says that is an atomic clock. It is the most accurate time in the world. And as soon as he says that, everybody is taking off their watches and they're adjusting their watch to that clock. In doing that, they have reconciled their watch to the clock. Reconciliation in Scripture is always one directional. It is not a compromise between God and man, where God moves toward us and man moves halfway. It is always one directional. It is always man reconciled to God, because God is perfect. And so we have to be reconciled to him. He cannot reconcile himself to us. And so we are put right with God. The difference between us and God is taken away when our sin is taken away, when we place our faith in Christ. And we are made 100% right with God because we have been reconciled to him and therefore we have peace with him. That's what Paul's making reference to, expounds on this more in the first 11 verses of Romans 5. So, he has reconciled you. We could not have done it. God did it through, reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. God has put us right with him. And because we are in Christ, we are as right with God as Christ is. And Christ himself is holy and blameless, and beyond reproach. And when we are in Christ, we are holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Does that mean that we cannot sin? Absolutely not. Does that mean that we can't break fellowship with God? No. 
doesn't mean that we will go our whole life and never turn away from God. No. So this is difficult because in the next verse here, verse 23, it says, If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. If indeed you continue. Now, this is a hard thing to work through, so I'm going to take a little time here. But what he is not saying is that your salvation is dependent upon what you do after you get saved. In other words, that you could lose your salvation if you don't continue in your salvation. The if here could be translated since. It is a first-class conditional in the Greek. means indeed, since, you are. So it says, since you continue in the faith. So he's not questioning their, their standing and how they are currently living. He knows they are continuing in the faith. But he does indicate here that not that, you, that there's any question about what they are currently doing, but he does indicate that it is not a given that every person is going to continue every moment of every day believing in Jesus. So this is where we got to think carefully here, because when it comes to our salvation and, 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 and sin, there's only three choices, right? One is that you are saved and that you never, ever turn away from Jesus, okay? And everybody just goes straight up. It's a steady plane going upward, and you never, ever turn away. Another is that you're saved and you lose your salvation because you've turned away. Or you just never were saved if you should turn away. And so people say, well, the guy that turned away from faith in Christ, he lost his salvation. Others say the guy who turned away from faith in Christ, that's an indication he never was saved. And some would say, you're never going to turn away, period. And so that by that, they, have, they build this doctrine of perseverance that says that you will never turn away from faith in Christ. And if you do, at the last moment, just before you die, you turn away from Jesus, well, that proves you were never saved to begin with. I have trouble with that. There is a lot in Scripture that really talks about the potential in each of us to not finish well. And so I've got to find my notes here. It's hard when you're a cripple. Even your hand doesn't work. But I want you to think about, you know, just there's so many things. Even here in Colossians, if you just go to the next chapter... And, and look what he says here in, in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So can a Christian be taken captive by philosophy and empty deception? Can a Christian be deceived? Yes. Does that mean that he lost his salvation if he should die in that state of deception? No. Does that mean he was never saved because he dies in a state of, de of deception? No. It just means it is possible for a person who is in Christ, who is right with God, who has been saved and is, and is now holy and righteous and blameless before God, that that person, in his own experience, can turn away from the Lord. He can be held captive by sin, Romans chapter 6. Sin can be his master. He can be deceived and come into captivity to philosophies of this world. Here are just some of the passages in the New Testament that warn us about not finishing well. 
Now, probably the most debated is the first passage here I'm going to mention, and that's the passage of, of, this, of the parable of the sower, as Matthew labels it, or we commonly call it the parable of the soils. And I take this, this is from the Luke account. Now, the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. And those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they do not, may not believe and be saved. So the first seed there is not saved. So the seed doesn't germinate. So if a person hears the gospel, they hear the truth about Jesus, and the devil comes and snatches it away before they even believe. So they're not even saved. It's very clear on that. Their first soil those people are not even saved. Couldn't be any clearer, okay? Not so with the other three soils that are mentioned. And those on the rocky soil are those, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, they fall away. But did they believe? Yes. Did that seed germinate? Was there life? Yes. Okay? There was life, and they fell away. And the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. So they too have believed, and there is life. But there's no maturity to the fruit that comes from their life because they're constantly conflicted. They're worried and caught up in the cares of this world. And they are not single-minded in their devotion to Christ and in their dependence upon Him. And so there's no lasting fruit that comes from their life. But there's no question. They believed and there is life. And then the third, the fourth soil and the seed and the good soil these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. So four kinds of soil, and only one of them does it clearly say were not saved. In the other three, the assumption is they are saved because there was life. The seed was received and the seed germinated. But two of the three... There is either no fruit or the fruit doesn't last to maturity because of the cares and concerns and worries of the world. There's no perseverance. I think John 15 is huge in this respect. Jesus is talking to 11 saved men. And he's saying, if you do not abide in me, you shall not bear fruit. Well, that's a pretty good indication that there's good soil. And their seed has germinated. But there's not necessarily any fruit if the Christian is not abiding in Christ. Think about Galatians. Paul never questions the salvation of the, of the people in the church of Galatia. But he does say, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Christians deserting Christ. But it was because of the false brethren who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. Christians can be brought into bondage. 
Again in Galatians chapter 4, but now that, that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? A Christian can go back to his former manner of life. But Paul doesn't question his salvation. Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. But he never questions these people's salvation. In Ephesians 4, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But we could be, is his point. Finally, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The implication is you can be weak and you can fall victim to the schemes of the devil. In Colossians, as we saw, I, I say this in order that you, no one may delude you with persuasive argument. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and, and empty deception. In 1 Thessalonians, and we sent Timothy, our brother, God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. If everybody's going to persevere to the end, why do we need to be strengthened and encouraged into our faith? There is the potential of turning away. For this reason, when I can endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and that our labor should have been in vain. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. And once again with the Thessalonians, Paul never questioned their salvation and never hinted that they could lose their salvation. But he did say the tempter could so tempt you that our labor would be in vain. They're still saved. But the tempter having turned them away from the Lord. Keeping faith in a good conscience which some have suffered shipwrecked in regard to their faith in 1 Timothy 1.19. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pain. It's over and over and over again in the New Testament. It is possible to be saved and wander away from the faith. You're still saved. In Christ you are still holy and righteous and blameless, but you've turned away from the Lord. No wonder Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, therefore take heed, he who thinks he stands, lest he fall. There's a story that I first heard about a few years ago, and, I, and it's about a man named Charles Templeton. Some of you older ones here may remember the name, but... Charles Templeton um, was a contemporary with Billy Graham, and they were best friends at one time. They actually co-founded Youth for Christ, Charles Templeton and Billy Graham. Youth for Christ still goes on today in a fantastic ministry. And so these two men were, were um, known nationally and internationally for their faith and for their evangelistic ministries. In fact, of the two men, most people thought that Charles Templeton would become the better-known evangelist because they saw him as being more gifted, more talented than Billy Graham. Didn't turn out that way. Charles Templeton became an agnostic. 
and totally turned away from the Lord. Listen to some of this about his story. Charles Templeton first professed faith in 1936 and became an evangelist that same year. In 1945, he met Billy Graham, and the two became friends, roaming and ministering together during, I'm sorry, I said rooming and ministering together during a 1946 YFC evangelistic tour in Europe. But by 1948, Templeton's life and worldview were beginning to go a different direction from Graham's. Doubts about the Christian faith were solidifying as he planned to enter Princeton Theological Seminary. Less than a decade later, 1957, he would publicly declare that he had become an agnostic. In his 1996 memoir, and he died five years later, he wrote a book called Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. A man who used to be known internationally for his faith and the evangelistic campaigns that he led. Thousands of people would have come to Christ through Charles Templeton's ministry. And the last book he wrote was Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. So what do you do with that? Was he never saved? Did he lose his salvation? Or did he turn away from Christ, but he's still saved? I think the third option is the best option. Continuing to read about his story, I find this fascinating. In 19, it says, Templeton recounted a conversation with Graham in Montreat prior to entering seminary. And this is quoting from, from Templeton. All of our differences came to a head in a discussion which better than anything I know explains Billy Graham and his phenomenal success as an evangelist. Again, Templeton is saying these things. In the course of our conversation, I said, but Billy, it's simply not possible any longer to believe, for instance, the biblical account of creation. The world was not created over a period of days a few thousand years ago. It has evolved over millions of years. It's not a matter of speculation. It's a demonstrable fact. I don't accept that, Billy said, and there are reputable scholars who don't. Who are these scholars, I said? Men in conservative Christian colleges? Most of them, yes, he said, but that's not the point. I believe the Genesis account of creation because it's in the Bible. I've discovered something in my ministry when I take the Bible literally, when I proclaim it as the word of God, my preaching has power. When I stand on the platform and says, God says, or the Bible says. Remember seeing those old video clips of him doing that on TV? I grew up watching Billy Graham. And I remember it's the Bible says. He says, when I stand on the platform and says, God says, or the Bible says, the Holy Spirit uses me. There are results Wiser men than you or I have been arguing questions like this for centuries. I don't have the time or the intellect to examine all sides of the theological dispute, so I've decided once for all to stop questioning and accept the Bible as God's word. But Billy, I protested, you cannot do that. You don't dare stop thinking about the most important question in life. Do it and you begin to die. It's intellectual suicide. I don't know about anybody else, he said, but I've decided that's the path for me. Their trajectories had been chosen. Fifty years later, Lee Stobel had an opportunity to interview Templeton, who had just a couple of years to live. 
He was in his 80s and suffering from Alzheimer's, but still a clear conversation partner. In a case for faith, Strobel recounts the ending of their wide-ranging conversation. And Strobel asked, how do you assess this Jesus? Now remember, this is a man who had just written a farewell to God. How do you assess this Jesus? It seemed like the next logical question, but I wasn't ready for the response it would evoke. Templeton's body language softened. It was as if he suddenly felt relaxed and comfortable in talking about an old and dear friend. His voice, which at times had displayed such a sharp and insistent edge, now took on a melancholy and reflective tone. His guard seemingly down, he spoke in an unhurried pace, almost nostalgically, carefully choosing his words as he talked about Jesus. He was, Templeton began, the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was intrinsically the wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. What could one say about him except that this was a form of greatness? I was taken aback. You sound like you really care about him, I said. Well, yes, he is the most important thing in my life, came his reply. I, 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 he stuttered, searching for the right word. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say, I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. Yes, yes, and tough, just look at Jesus. He castigated people. He was angry. People don't think of him that way, but they don't read the Bible. He had a righteous anger. He cared for the oppressed and the exploited. There's no question that he had the highest moral standard, the least duplicity, the greatest compassion of any human being in history. There have been many other wonderful people, but Jesus is Jesus. Ah, but no, he said slowly, he's the most. He stopped, then started again. In my view, he declared, he is the most important human being who has ever existed. That's when Templeton uttered the words I never expected to hear from him. If I may put it this way, he said, as his voice began to crack, I miss him. With that, tears flooded his eyes. He turned his head and looked downward, raising his left hand to shield his face from me. His shoulders bobbed as he wept. Templeton fought to compose himself. I could tell it wasn't like him to lose control in front of a stranger. He sighed deeply and wiped away a tear. After a few more awkward moments, he waved his hand dismissively, finally, quietly, but adamantly insisted, enough of that. Beverly Ivany of the Salvation Army read a farewell to God and ironically was strengthened in her faith after reading Templeton's book. And she became friends with him before his death in 2001. Ivany wrote that Templeton's last words, as reported by Templeton's wife, Madeline, were, Madeline, do you see them? Do you hear them? The angels, they're calling my name. I'm coming home. Wow. But he lived 50 years as an agnostic, a man who denied salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ.
He'd gotten to the point in college at Princeton, he denied even the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, it's anecdotal, and I don't like anecdotes. We go on what the Word of God says. And what the Word of God says is that only God can save you. And what God does, man cannot undo. The work of God is eternal. And if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, it is an eternal salvation. You are in the hand of Jesus Christ, and Christ's hand is in the hand of the Father. And Jesus says in John 10, and no one shall take you out of my hand. That's pretty strong evidence that we are saved. Some would say that if a person has turned away from Christ, it is evidence that they never were believed. And, you can, and the only assurance that you can have of your salvation is your perseverance. I take strong exception to that. I would say, yes, persevering is an evidence of being saved. But it has nothing to do with assurance of salvation. I know I am saved because of what Jesus Christ has done not because of what I am doing. I am saved because Jesus Christ saved me. He transferred me from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. He is the one who has reconciled me through, the, through his body and through his death. I didn't save myself. God has saved me. The assurance of my salvation is not how I perform after I get saved. If you believe that you have to persevere to the end or else you prove that you were never saved, you need to face the truth. You will never be sure that you're saved. How can you have assurance, certainty of your salvation if your salvation depends upon you persevering to the very end? Then you can never be sure that you're saved because you have not yet persevered to the very end. And it's not just assurance. It is certainty. In Romans chapter 4, we're told that these things are by faith in order that they might be certain. If they have anything to do other than with Jesus Christ, then I can never be sure that I belong to Him. So we are His by the grace of God. And only by God's grace, which He does supply, we can continue in the faith. But it is possible for any Christian to turn away from him, and many have. If we were to go by the percentages in the parable of the soils, two-thirds of those who are saved will turn away and not have fruit that is lasting. And only one-third will have fruit that is lasting throughout life, that will persevere to the very end. I don't know if Jesus meant it that way. But it could be. But it certainly sometimes seems that we see a lot more people turn away from the faith than they continue. And we should be like Paul, praying that they would remain steadfast in the faith. We had a prayer request this morning before Sunday school in our praise and prayer time, which I would really encourage you to be a part of. Um, few of us come together and we share prayer requests and praises. It's not everybody praying. Just one person leading, he takes the prayer request and he prays. And then we, and we, in our hearts, just joining that person in prayer. But it's good to know what the prayer requests are in the fellowship and how we can be praying for each other. But there was a prayer request this morning. Believer, first year in university, and he is turning away from the faith. We need to be praying for steadfastness of faith. That doesn't mean that young man was never saved. It means the tempter is trying to turn him away from Christ.
Even should we prove faith less. Remember what 1 Timothy said? He remains faithful. It's not about our faithfulness. It's about his faithfulness. We are saved by the grace of God, and we are kept by the grace of God, and we will enter heaven by the grace of God. And it might be that after everything has been examined, every word, every thought, every action, it might conceivably be, 1 Corinthians 3 says, that it will all be burned up as wood, hay, and stubble. And yet it follows up. And yet we shall be saved. Because the foundation that has been laid in our life is Jesus Christ. And a person could hypothetically spend his whole life building on that foundation through his own efforts, not by faith in Christ, and it will all be burned up, and yet he is saved. We have certainty of that. Now, in the ten minutes left, I was going to finish the rest of this chapter. I hope you're encouraged with that. I mean, there's more people around us struggling with assurance of their salvation than, than we probably will ever know. And thinking that maybe be, they, because they've, they've turned away, maybe they can never turn back again. Maybe they've lost their salvation. We all are in such a, a strategic position to encourage and help people that if your heart turns away from the Lord, I mean, how long is long enough? I mean, how long do you have to be turned away from the Lord before you say that person was never saved to begin with or that person lost their salvation? Come on. Is it five years or is it five minutes? How long? There's nothing in the scripture that says after five years you can just say you never were served to begin with. Well, what about five minutes? What is time to God? It's nothing. Jesus finished the work of atonement and redemption. He paid for all sin. And when we place our faith in him, the slate is wiped clean. We are ransomed by the blood of Christ, purchased by his blood. We are sealed by the, by the Spirit until the day of redemption. We have been born again from above. Over and over again, the language of Scripture is certainty, security, because of what God has done simply through faith in Jesus Christ. But yes, we can turn away from him. But we cannot undo what God has done. I heard a person say one time, it only takes a moment to turn away from Jesus. And it only takes a moment to turn back. No matter how far down the path you've gone, it could be 50 years like Charles Templeton. It just takes a moment to turn back. And he is waiting and willing to accept us again because the relationship was never broken. It's a wayward prodigal child. But that father is waiting and willing to take back all those who turn back to him. I think we'll just stop with that rather than rush through these next verses. I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, I do thank you so much for the grace that has been showered upon us. As it says, and I believe it's Ephesians, we have been lavished with the grace of God. As Peter said, we have been provided everything necessary for living a life of godliness in Christ Jesus. You are the supreme one, and you are absolutely sufficient for this life. And because of that, God, there is no reason for any of us to turn away from trusting you but we all are tempted to, and all of us have, at one time or another to some measure. 
we'd be liars to say anything else. Our hearts are not always true to you. And sometimes we just dress ourselves up to make, us, make ourselves look good to others when our hearts are far away from you. But God, I thank you. And in your power, you took those who were alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, and you transferred them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved Son. It is you who has reconciled us to yourself. And we are kept for the day of redemption by the strong hand of Jesus. I thank you that our assurance does not lie in whether or not we're persevering. But our assurance lies in who Jesus is and what he has done. I pray, God, that we would not diminish him by making our salvation the consequence of our perseverance. We lower Jesus when we do that. He is the one who keeps us. He is both the author and the perfecter of our salvation. And we thank you and praise you for that. And I do pray, God, that we would encourage one another, as Paul's going to say later in this chapter, admonish one another, teaching one another with all faithfulness and diligence to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and to not turn away. As he would say in Philippians, that we would continue to reach forward, pressing on, to lay hold of that for which we have been laid hold of. And that we would count it a privilege, God, to do so because of this great salvation that we've been given and because of the worthiness of Jesus Christ. In his name I pray, amen.